0: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
1: Welcome to The Daily Dive, weekend edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Parents, students, and educators have been alarmed recently with the increase of gun confiscations and shootings at school campuses. But also, there's been an increase of swatting events, hoax 911 calls about active shooters. In response to all of this, school districts are beefing up security with new metal detectors random searches, and anonymous tip lines. For more on how gun and student behavioral problems are on the rise, we'll speak to Scott Calvert, reporter at The Wall Street Journal.
2: There's definitely been an increase in these gun-related incidents depending on sort of how you how you measure it. So I can give you just a couple statistics maybe to put it in context. So when it comes to gun confiscations, where they find a gun in somebody in a student's car maybe, or in their backpack, something like that. So there's a group called the Gun Violence Archive, and they mostly used media reports to, to track these. And what they found is that just in August and September of this year, so basically the first two months of the school year, there were more than 220 of those gun seizures. And if you go back to uh, last year during that same period in 2019, before the pandemic, in those same two months, we're talking about 130 or so. So from, two, from 130 or so to 220, big increase and then on the, on the shooting side, you know, there's a group called the K-12 School Shooting Database. And basically, they look at anything where a gun is brandished, so like somebody takes it out and like points it at somebody, or the gun is fired, or even a bullet hits the, hits the school. And this can be during school or at night, on weekends. And they look at all of those. And what they have found was that so far this calendar year, there have been more than 220 of those. And during the same period last year, we're talking about 182. So a decent size increase there percentage-wise. And in, a, in about half of those 220-plus incidents, there was at least one shooting victim, right? So somebody mm-hmm. actually actually got shot. So pretty concerning there. And then just on the, on the swatting, where, again, like you were saying, somebody calls 911 and says, hey, there's an active shooter at whatever school. And, you know, the, the police rush there because they don't know. Um, and then they get there and come to find out that it's all a hoax. And in that context, there's a group called the National Association of School Resource Officers, and they say, Since September 9th, so not that long ago, just the last month or so, they have found seen incidents along these lines in at least 17 states plus Washington, D.C. And so (laughs) across the board, you see this, this increase that is really causing a lot of concern.
1: And, you know, how does this manifest? Right. There's uh, situations are different in all cases. But in uh, your article, you talked about Rock Hill, South Carolina, where they recovered guns at three schools on three consecutive days to just kind of illustrate right. how, how crazy the problem is. And one of them yeah. it was a 14 year old student. He was in a fight in the bathroom. The gun fell out of his pants. He picked it up and pointed it at another student. I mean, this is right. some of the types of ways these things are happening.
2: Yeah, and I I was talking with the superintendent there, and he said that was the most disturbing because it was a middle school. And also, uh, you had somebody pointing a gun at at a fellow student. In the other two cases, they both happened in high schools. And and the superintendent said, you know, the good news there is that in one case, one student overheard other students talking about how one of them had a gun. It was in, it was found in the car. But that student, you know, went to an adult and said, hey, I heard this. And that takes some courage, I think, for a high schooler to do that because you know there's this whole sort of don't snitch kind of culture. And then the other case, the school resource officer, which who is a, a police officer who, who's detailed to the school to provide armed security, he noticed something suspicious in a cafeteria. And it was another student doing something kind of, you know, suspicious with, a, with, a, with another student. And so the school resource officer went back to the, his office and looked at video footage on his computer from before he walked in. And he was even more concerned. And so the upshot there is that they eventually found a loaded 9 millimeter handgun yeah. in that kid's backpack.
1: That is a scary situation. And that's a particular one because they spoke to the student. And he said, you know, I just uh, knew I was going to encounter somebody, you know, on the schoolyard or at the bus stop or whatever it was. And he says, you know, I just yeah. uh, I, I needed to be prepared already. So uh, just to uh, be in that mindset for a student is just really crazy. And so how are school districts responding to all this? They're beefing up security. Yeah, well, so they got, uh, you know, these uh, metal detectors. They're doing random right. checks. They have anonymous right. tip line set up. How are they responding?
2: Yeah, all of those things. I mean, you know, and as you say, it's this. there's a definite sense that, that the pandemic is part of what's going on here, right? Because, first of all, society wide, we've had this big increase in violent crime across the United States. So schools are a mirror of society in that sense. Also, you've got these kids who many of them are still dealing socially with all the chaos and discombobulation of, of the pandemic but then part of it also is the sense that you know there is better detection you've got kids you know using the tip lines or going to an adult and also things like these random searches so it's sort of a combination of maybe more guns in general coming into the schools but also greater uh, success at detecting them and you know metal detectors are kind of a tricky area because in, in part because they're they're sort of difficult to kind of move kids through in an orderly way we've all been to events where there's sort of a line because it's taking a while to get through security but I did talk with the uh, Wichita, Kansas school system. And they just spent about a million bucks buying 58 of these portable metal detectors. And this particular brand, they say that, you know, you don't have to, to take keys out of your pocket or things out of your backpack, that somehow the device is sophisticated enough to recognize, distinguish a gun, say, from, I don't know, a lunchbox or some other metal object. And so the hope is that will sort of keep things moving, but it will also help them detect these, but also deter kids from bringing them in the first place if they think they might get caught, right?
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, you don't want to have them there. And, and in all of this, and some of the other uh, officials, the law enforcement officials you spoke to said, you know, why is this happening, the availability of guns for young people to access, so that access is just there for them, and then a lack of consequences when all of this stuff goes down. So an interesting look at this, and yeah, definitely concerning for all parties involved. Scott Calvert, Mm -hmm. reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Police departments across the country have been struggling with recruiting new officers and retaining their current force as we see a rise in violent crime, and a line of work that has just lost its popularity. To attract more recruits, departments are adjusting standards to fill vacancies, which has already led to some problems, and they're boosting up signing bonuses. In Redding, California, the signing bonus was $40,000, more than half an entire year's starting salary. For more on how law enforcement agencies are trying to attract new cops, we'll speak to Zusha Ellenson, national reporter at the Wall Street Journal.
3: So you've seen in the last couple of years an uptick in retirements and resignations at police departments around the country. And um, what police chiefs say is that police officers are becoming demoralized because there's a lot of public criticism of them and they don't like all the scrutiny. They feel it's unfair. And also, of course, there's a tight labor market, so they're seeking out other jobs as well. So that's a combination that has led to what police departments say is a shortage of officers Um, Now, just to preface this, if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you can see that after many years of growth, the number of police officers dipped in 2020 in the U.S. and then in 2021 has edged back up to pre-pandemic levels. So the numbers don't quite bear out how bad the uh, police departments think it is, but they say it's bad. And so what they're doing is offering really huge bonuses that we've never really seen before. Small little cities offering $30,000, $40,000 30000 $40,000 to cops who are willing to come work for them. Other cities offering retention bonuses for police officers just to stay with them. And they're growing more desperate because, as you said, crime, violent crime has spiked over 2020 and 21. Shootings have spiked in some cities and mayors and police chiefs are, are very desperate to bring in more bodies.
1: It seems like that big inflection point where things really started to change was all the nationwide protests over the murder of George Floyd. That was in 2020. And that's where, you know, we started hearing defund the police, obviously all the protests against police and all that. And then obviously the pandemic. But it seems like that's kind of where this current trajectory of bad publicity towards police really started.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely what happened. And and if you listen to the police chiefs, they say that's what's caused morale to go down. What's interesting is in our story, we talked to some police chiefs about how they're recruiting new officers in one small city in Northern California. They make the case that everyone loves the police in Redding, California, the city's called. And they really make the the case that, you know, people in the city, they uh, pro police they back law enforcement and that's a big part of their recruiting pitch is they try to take people from larger cities
1: let's stick with reading then because they, they were a, a particular example in your story so they had signing bonuses for officers of five thousand dollars they upped that to seventy five hundred bucks That still didn't work. Then they said, we're going to go to $40,000 for a signing bonus. That's more than half of an entire year starting salary there with the police department. And I think they were looking to hire 15 open spots. Mm -hmm. Um, They were only able to get 10 uh, at some point. But just tell us a little bit more about what they were doing.
3: Yeah, so basically, they put a little ad in um, a union publication saying they were willing to pay $40,000 to uh, lateral officers, officers coming from other agencies, and it worked. I mean, people, they got a ton of applications, they've been pulling officers from all over the state. Um, we talked to one California Highway Patrol officer who was working in San Francisco, and that's a very good job working for California Highway Patrol, sort of the top of the rung if you're in the policing world in California. And he was, uh, you know, the $40,000 bonus made him look twice at Reading, and he decided to go up there. So it seems like it it has been working. And, you know, in terms of what it's also done, is, then you've seen other cities offer bonuses. You see Seattle, which has lost a ton of officers the last couple of years, offering $30,000 bonuses for lateral hires and $7,500 bonuses for new hires. And you see small cities like Ithaca, New York, offering $20,000. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to be a police officer, it's a good time if you want to make some money.
1: Yeah, the average salary for police officers was $70,740 in 2021. That was compared for all other occupations, at about $58,000. So they're making pretty decent money there. But the other thing that's going on, you know, we're talking about how tough it is them for, for them to attract people. The agencies are also having to adjust the standards that they have to fill vacancies one police chief said we're hiring people we wouldn't normally hire and uh, you have a particularly crazy example in the story but you know <laughs> we've been hearing some of that go on for some time so you know with things like tattoos you know before you couldn't have tattoos visible tattoos now you got to make sure you can cover them up but uh you know they're they're loosening standards all over the place but uh, just, uh tell us a little bit more about that one too
3: Yeah, and this this seems to be a really big danger of the tight labor market, which is that they're just sort of overlooking things they wouldn't have overlooked in the past to hire people because they need people for instance, places are dropping college requirements for their officers. A lot of cities had requirements that they did some college. Now they're dropping that. Um, and in particular, in the example you were bringing up in Alameda County, that's in the Bay Area there, um, the sheriff's department said that they had, they're hiring people they wouldn't have in the past. I mean, the guy told me they're scraping the barrels, how he described it. And there was a really um, horrendous case there. They hired this officer from the Stockton Police Department. He had washed out during his probation period there that, you know, Stockton said they didn't think they wanted him as an officer. And so Alameda County hires him for the sheriff's department. Um, about a year after he's on the job, one day after work, he goes allegedly to the home of a couple in the East Bay there and murders them. And so now he's in jail And so the sheriff's department said they're looking at what kind of red flags they may have missed in the hiring process, but certainly a very startling example. And the research shows, if you talk to policing experts, that if you loosen your standards when hiring, there's more likely to be trouble and misconduct by police officers down the road. Pretty well-known fact.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's just about the worst kind of example you could ever have when you're talking about this stuff. And, you know, back to the public safety things, right? The police chiefs are saying that, As we've seen, rising crime and everything—all of this kind of creates this crisis that's slowing down response times. It's affecting investigations because they just don't have the manpower.
3: Yeah, that's right. It's sort of like a sort of a really bad cycle that started. If you look at a city like Seattle, right, you have cops who say they're you know not happy with their jobs. Some of them leave, then the ones who remain are overworked. Um, and then they're unhappy and they want to leave. And it just becomes a, a bad cycle for the police department. Yeah.
1: Well, if you're in the market to uh, be a police officer, might uh, right now might be a good time. You know, check out for those signing bonuses and other retention bonuses. Uh, you know, it, it might be something that you could be interested in. Zusha Ellenson, national reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me. And I'll talk to you soon unless you take one of those jobs at the police department.
1: (laughs) I don't know if that'll happen, but uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Zusha. All right. Bye-bye.
0: There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic.
1: As we continue to deal with the aftermath of Hurricane Ian, meteorologists, emergency managers, and others are asking what they could have done better to effectively communicate with the public. This time, computer models were at odds with each other until about 36 hours before the storm hit, and graphics used such as the cone of uncertainty are often misunderstood. For more on why Ian was one of the most complex hurricanes to forecast, we'll speak to Andrew Friedman, climate and energy reporter at Axios.
4: Some of the tools that meteorologists use to track such storms typically come into agreement, come to a consensus somewhere around 72 hours before a hurricane landfall, there's still uncertainty, but the general story comes to be known. With this one, part of the reason is because it was approaching at a particular angle to a coastline that is shaped in a certain way. So it's approaching at an oblique angle, which means that any little change in its heading means a vastly different outcome. So it would mean the difference between it coming ashore over Naples, Florida, which was a heavily affected community, versus well north of Tampa. So the computer models were really struggling with that. They were struggling with the timing of a weather system in the jet stream that would potentially pick up the storm and lift it to the northeast. And they were kind of arguing between each other over whether that would happen and if it happens, when. And that sort of thing. Now we have many models and they're run multiple times using different initial conditions. So we have models as varied as the UK met as the h wharf, as the European and American. And really it came down to this battle between the European and the American and they started to move into consensus, but not until about 48 hours in advance of landfall. And the hurricane center had kind of split the difference and was really solid in terms of where their cone of uncertainty was. The area of that had the landfall was in the cone of uncertainty almost the entire time. It's just that people tend to look at that central line and think okay. that the storm's impacts are going to miss them.
1: So that's the other part of this, right? The way we take in that information. So at first, as you mentioned, right, some of the models were at at war with each other. The consensus came pretty late. So then, you know, to make evacuation orders at that point, for a lot of people, it's a little too late. Some would rather just stick it out. And yeah, so the, the other part is the way we take in that information and the way this graphic that they use, the cone of uncertainty, I guess they say that if you're, Like, in that cone of uncertainty, there's two-thirds likelihood that you're going to see a direct hit from that landfall. But as you mentioned, people see it and they think it's just going to be hitting right at that central line, so you don't worry about it once you get to the outer ends of that cone, and that's just not true.
4: Yeah, it's a probability-based graphic, and people don't understand what it actually is. And I don't blame them because it's not communicated very clearly by TV meteorologists, by journalists like myself. I could be doing a better job communicating it. But it's based on the past five years of performance in track forecasts. So the cone is that two-thirds area that's likely to see the eye pass over a certain point. Now, what that implies is there's a significant chance that that storm's eye is actually going to pass outside of the cone entirely. And when you consider how big these storms are, even if it passes within that cone, if you're just south of the cone, if you're just north of the cone, if you're anywhere else in Florida, you're still going to feel the impacts of a storm like this. And that's something that was emphasized by forecasters and by the National Hurricane Center. But I'm not sure it was emphasized enough and to such a large degree. There is that controversy over the storm surge forecast for Lee County, which is the county where most of the deaths occurred. And that that was a storm surge forecast for about six feet of surge 48 hours in advance, which should have triggered an evacuation based on their plan. But they chose to wait longer for more certainty. And that tells you kind of how people are processing this information. And one of the ways is we kind of anchor our views to the earlier forecasts or the first forecasts that we hear about or see. And then when we see them changing, when we see them vacillating, we kind of don't know maybe what to do with that information unless you're an expert. And then you wait for that consensus to happen. And when the consensus ha- happens, it might be too late to evacuate, especially if you're on one of the barrier islands.
1: And there's a number of reasons why people choose not to evacuate either. They've been through a, a hurricane before and they know they can weather it. Money is an issue for leaving too. And there's a lot of things that happen there. And so, what's happening next is there's a study examining how people perceive and process and respond to these changing forecasts during hurricanes. There's also a call to use different graphics that aren't the cone of uncertainty, things that can maybe show a little bit better the areas that will be affected. And there are those graphics that do exist. So, you know, this is all just in keeping, right? The hurricane passed already. We're trying to learn from the mistakes, and hopefully, many more aren't. Get- caught off guard as much the next time. Andrew Friedman, climate and energy reporter at Axios, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.